0: Notice. <laughs> the tendency hasn't changed, just the substance. Can <laughs> you put the steps down here for me? And a clock. <clears throat> My name's Adele. I'm very gratefully clean and sober. And I am so grateful to be here as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And to be hi, and to be free from the enslavement of alcoholism. That's how addiction is described an enslavement to a substance or behavior. And I was enslaved many years after I got sober, and uh, I am so grateful to be free. Thank you so much, Glenn and Christine, for hosting us. And we've been treated so beautifully by everybody. Thank you, John, for taking us up to the Springs Hotel. How glorious that was. And my my husband, whom I absolutely adore. I'm so glad you got to hear him last night. I'm so lucky to be with him. This is our 21st year. And uh, I love him more today than I ever have, and that's what's possible. You know, I hope that we we embody that love, and uh, and that our being together speaks so loudly that you don't hear a word we're saying. <laughs> I took a walk this morning in this beautiful community. We had just such a wonderful time, and thank you, Charlene and Chris for bringing to uh, the attention of the committee about us. We're so grateful to be here. And they are members of Sedona, where we live. Um, they are part of our community. They come down about once a year or so. And we're so grateful to have them. If you're in Sedona, I have a lot of home groups. <laughs> um, 7.30 in the morning upon awakening, we meditate in that group. <clears throat> And share, uh, the Wednesday women's group at the Unity Church and Jay and I attend on Saturday 8 a.m. at Stutz Bearcat. You're so welcome and we hope you contact us when you're coming through. It's a place as beautiful as here. I was walking this morning trying to get settled before here and I came, you know, walking down the street and I saw this big mountain. So glorious. And I noticed there was something that was not happening in the mountain. Do you know what that was? It wasn't thinking (laughs) at all just being. It wasn't running around trying to fix anything. It wasn't trying to go to Los Angeles to heal people. It wasn't trying to take anyone's inventory, didn't wish it was a river. It was just being. And the whole world comes to it. It was grounded in its source, and the glory of it brings people to its feet. And that is a lesson that I've had a really hard time learning. I ate to be with me, and I drank to be with you. And part of my story is that when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was not coming to recover from alcoholism. I was with someone from another program, and she was stalking someone. And so I came into the closing meeting of a roundup. There was about 4,000 people there. And I was very, very grateful that all of you had Alcoholics Anonymous because it appeared that you needed it very much. (laughs) But I was so struck by what was happening in there, and at the closing prayer when everyone held hands, I was deeply, deeply moved, and I came back, and I knew that there was something there for me. I'm also recovering bulimic and I want to talk to that, about that for just a moment because it's extremely important in, with regards to my recovery from alcoholism. Number one, I want to be a pig and not pay for it. As long as I look okay on the outside, then whatever's happening on the inside is okay. As long as I can hide it from you, then there's nothing really going on. That's number one. Secondly, is both are going to kill me, and I need to address them. I need to go where I can get recovery from that addiction as well. I have a sponsor in that program. I've attended in that program, and, um, and I, can't, I need to hear specific information from people who do what I do in order to recover. The other thing is I have 25 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. My, my sobriety date is June 28, 1989. And I have about 19 and a half years in Overeaters Anonymous of abstinence. And I got abstinent and sober on the same day, which means I relapsed in Overeaters Anonymous while I was sober. And what happened was I was so ashamed about that that I came into meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and I lied by omission. If you have a compulsion, if you have something going on that you're hiding, every time you walk into, and by my favorite form of dishonesty is by omission. And you know what? There's a funny thing about that. It's lying. (laughs) (laughs) And so every time I walked into a room and I didn't talk about what I was hiding, I was lying to you. And the voice told me, you are a liar and a cheat and a thief as I was uh, sitting there looking good. And you know why it told me that? Because I was. I was doing all of those things. And that is a horrible way to live. And that is not being sober. And if you have something like that going on, you know, you may be thinking, well, food that has nothing to do with alcoholism. You know, it might be like porn all night. Or whatever it is for you or there's some lie and what's happening is it's coming between you and your God and other people and your job and all those kinds of things please grab one of us and tell us we might not have that problem but we know someone who does and even more important we know someone who doesn't have to do that anymore and you don't have to suffer like that like I did for three years so that's a really important part. I grew up in a really crazy family. I know that comes to a big shock to most of you. <laughs> I, and thank you to all the speakers this weekend. I was very moved. I related very much. Larsine, I, I related so much to what you were talking about. I was that kid in the family I had, there was alcoholism. Uh, Let me describe what the house was like. Maybe about 1300, 1400 square feet. There were nine kids. My mom had married someone with seven children and they had a child and uh, an alcoholic. His wife was in a mental institution and she went to fix him. Mm We had, in that tiny house, we raised Rottweilers and English Mastiffs. We had gerbils, we had parakeets, cats, we had peacocks in the basement, chickens. We were the family on the block that everyone talked about. But the crazy thing was, we were told how special and above everyone we were. When I grew up... It was like that, And I knew something was wrong. I had come into this family. I I was kind of a really strange kid. I, I, you know, I never wanted to fit in. I hear that all the time in Alcoholics Anonymous. That idea made me nauseous. I wanted to stand above and apart. I wanted to be special. I wanted first place on the wall behind me. And that's how my office was when I got sober. They would be lined up, and you would look at them when you came in. I had to get an A-plus for a C average. A-plus so I was allowed to breathe. I did not want to fit in. And as a kid, I experienced the whole world as a personal assault. My senses were way, way overstimulated. I came out of the chute like that. Everything hurt. It was too bright. It was too loud. And I got dumped into this family with all this stuff going on. And I was, it was like Sarajevo every day. (laughs) And so what I did was I retreated to my mind. I retreated completely into thought. I lived from above the nose up. That's it. I had no sense of body. I had no sense of anything. I went there to be safe. That's where I lived. That's like going to like going to the ghetto to get a good night's sleep. You know. <laughs> And so I I lived completely out of touch with everything going on. I was not interested in what was happening. I was interested in what else was happening, you know, what else might be. I waited for someone to come and rescue me, and nobody came. When I was about 11, I realized nobody was coming. And that's when I retreated completely to my mind. I was a straight-A student. All of uh, my my stepbrothers and sisters were into drugs and alcohol. There was a lot of compulsive overeating, a lot of insanity in that house. And I was the good kid. It was the only slot that was left. (laughs) I, I had my first drinks when I was about 13. Uh, my stepbrothers, who hated being around me, you know, there's nothing worse than the, the kid in the family who's getting straight A's. You know, they used to steal my report cards. They they did everything to try to get me to shut up so I wouldn't get them in trouble. And they didn't want any part of me. But somehow they got, you know, talked into to taking me with them. And and I had, uh, as I recall, I had 11 beers and and a bottle of of. Uh, Strawberry Hill I think it was. I didn't have a shut off valve. I just didn't have one. I still don't have one. You can see I always carry two drinks. <laughs> always. And what happened was I had a blackout. <clears throat> I was to have blackouts uh, much through. Actually, I kind of had brownouts. That's when you come to in various points of the night. It's really bad. I wished I had just pure blackouts. But I, I you know, I ended up in a park face, you know, with a, with a boy. I was a really good kid and. And in the car and on the on the floorboards, you know, throwing up, that kind of thing. And I had a couple other experiences like that where I blacked out. And I decided at that point that I was not going to drink until I graduated from high school. It never occurred to me to drink less. Never even went through my mind. I just knew that when I picked up alcohol, I could not control the outcome. And I had too much invested in being good. And so I went about uh, doing that. Um... I want to talk a a minute about what was happening in that house because I don't think that my environment caused me to be alcoholic. I have an abnormal response when I drink a couple things happen i i flush which means i get really hot and really red that's a, a something that happens more and more the more i dr- drank the other thing is i want more right now i just want more that's all i can think of more 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 that's an abnormal reaction and what i what i know about that is that you know, I just, I'm made like that. I don't even care about why. But what my family did set me up for was delusion. In my family, we were, I knew things were very different than what was being reported in the house. And the way I experienced it was, the walls were pink. Whack. Whack. They're blue. No, the walls are pink. Whack! They're blue. A lot of violence, a lot of insistence that things that were not actually happening were, and things that were happening were not. So ultimately, I stopped saying, the walls are pink. And then I stopped believing the walls are pink. So I am well set up for delusion. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was not in denial. The definitions is very important for me. I find that I'm confused about things a lot. Um, It's really helpful to look things up in the dictionary for me. I was college educated, I was a college administrator when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and my sponsor told me to look up the words in the big book and I explained to her she was never interested in my explanations <laughs> that I was well educated and she told me to look them up anyway and so I did and deluge, uh, denial denial is that there is some fact, something that I'm saying that I'm denying is either false or true. The underlying implication is that I know the difference, right? A delusion is a persistent false belief about something inside or something I perceive to be outside that I deny with irrefutable evidence to the contrary. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous believing the lie. And so it took me several years to get up to denial. (laughs) That was a big leap forward. And so what I was set up very well for in my growing up was, was delusion. The thing about delusion is, it's completely self-referential. That is, it's kind of like a dream. You know, if you're inside a dream, it's you only have the reference to the dream itself. You don't have any outside reference. So when I'm trying to tell someone or yell at them and they're in a delusion, it's, it's kind of like... Uh, if there's a, someone who, who is delusional in a hospital, let's say he believes there are snipers in the room. And you're you're in the room with him, and he sees it's not as if he's making up the fact that there are snipers in there in the way we think making up. He sees them as if they're real, and they're shooting at him. And I'm going to shake him and saying there are no sp- uh, snipers. Do you think that's going to be helpful? No, it's not. So there has to be some kind of a crack in the delusion in order for help to come into him, right? Has anyone ever seen a beautiful mind? If you haven't, I really urge you to rent that and And if you have to see it again and think of it in terms of alcoholism, there's a point at which the main character, the the uh, scientist, he's driving down the street. he's already been in a mental hospital, and he sees. A whole set of events that aren't happening, especially, uh, in particular, his college roommate, which we don't find out until halfway through the movie, only exists in his mind. And a little girl. And he's driving in the rain, and he realizes suddenly that the little girl has never grown up. And that's the moment in which help can come through. And even though he sees that in the future, what does he do? He ignores it. He doesn't engage with the false belief, even though it's present to him, because he knows that it's not real. That doesn't mean it stops appearing to him. That means he knows it's not real. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I'll just tell you that I started drinking again when I went to college. I never experienced what I hear in, uh, you know, people talk about having fun. And I looked like I was having fun. You know, it's very theatrical. I wore opera. I know you can't believe that. Uh, <laughs> I wore opera gloves and, you know, had all kinds of colors of hair. I was screaming, you know, that I was different. And then trying to convince you of how smart I was, I was just confused. And um, I, I drank to quiet down this head. I just, it was just like, shh. That's all I wanted. You know, you have that drink and you go. <sighs> That's what I wanted. I wanted to rest. I believe that everything we do in the material world, everything we look for, everything we seek, everything we try to get and grab sober too. Is for the purpose of resting. If I follow it down the line, I want that really nice car. I want to. Why? Why do I want the car? Why do I want the job? So people will notice me, and that, and they'll tell. You know, they'll tell me I'm okay, and I'll feel okay about myself. Why do I want that? So I can rest. And you know, the funny thing is that rest is our very nature. That's who we are. Can you feel it right here, right now? Wow. That's so cool. The steps are designed to clean us out so we can experience what we really are, which is rest. And the way I went about before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, getting to the point where I could rest was the most unrestful thing in the world. The place I went to feel safety and security and and peace was a madhouse I was the I was the torturer of myself and looking for peace it was you know I, I was so confused I was just so confused I got sober at 30 and what I was doing <clears throat> I I Because I flushed when I drank, uh, I had to take my clothes off a lot. (laughs) Wearing lingerie in public became very popular, but in 1976, I assure you it was not. So uh, I, you know, at the end of my drinking, I couldn't go out anymore because, you know, when you're 21, it's cute. (laughs) When you're 30, it, it really stops being cute. I wasn't cute anymore. And I was at home doing exactly what I saw growing up. I was drinking a box of wine. You know, we had, we came from wine connoisseurs. That's what my stepdad always, he had wine collections. But I'll tell you at night, the Gallo Vin Rose got opened and the lid screwed off. You know, even today I have a really hard time with lids. (laughs) You just open it. So I was sitting at home with that box of wine. And it had become, I I was in the progressive stages of alcoholism, and I didn't know it. It started tasting like rubbing alcohol to me. And I was in a state of delusion. So I had told myself that that what I was experiencing was normal. I didn't go to sleep. I passed out. But I just needed it to help me go to sleep. I didn't drink in the morning if it went in a blender, or I was still drinking the night before, or it went into something that looked like a breakfast drink. You know? I drank really sweet alcohol. I told everyone for several years I didn't drink vodka. I just put it in all the sweet alcohols to cut the sweet. You know, I, w- I was absolutely delusional. And my my sponsor was was very wonderful. She said, Adele, you know, it might be that some other people can stay in program and not work the steps, um, but you're far too sick. I do want to tell you that I came in to Alcoholics Anonymous and I did not get a sponsor for the first six months. And the reason I didn't was because I was too frightened to ask for help. I could help you, but I came in here dying of compulsive competency. I came in with, I wore all black, I had red lipstick on, and high heels, I'm six feet tall on the natch, and I had that do not speak to me under any circumstances. Look on my face, I looked like I was here for years. People were asking me directions, but they weren't introducing themselves. And I wondered why you weren't talking to me, you know. Get away from me and please, where are you going? You know, that kind of thing. So I look for the girls with their lipstick on straight (laughs) because I know that they're going to fall apart sometime and that's going to be the moment when they start getting well and I want to be there when that happens, you know, because I understand them. I understand them. So she had me start with step one and she had me write out step one. I learned at that time I was using a computer and I never hand wrote anything and I informed my sponsor of that. (laughs) And I was trying to, uh, you know, and she told me, Adele, when you type it accesses the wrong side of the brain. When you write, it accesses your emotional, and it's a, it's a great lie detector. You can type a lie in a, in a heartbeat. It's hard, much harder to write it. And so I have never written inventory with anything but a pen and paper. And she had me write down how my drinking had affected the people, my other people that I knew, my friends, my family, my job, my education, my relationship with myself, and my relationship with the power greater than myself and I was really grateful for that because I got to realize, make real what had happened to me and I was able to discern whether I love the word discern, the the word discern means that I look and see whether my behavior and actions brought about the effect that I had desired when doing them Isn't that a great definition? I love that. My sponsor gave that to me. And I got to see whether or not that was true in my drinking. And I got to see the delusion that it was true, because it was in black and white before me. And that was the chink, you know what I mean? And I started, and and information started coming in. I really did not know if I was alcoholic for a long time. Everyone I knew drank like I did. I grew up in that environment, and I didn't know the difference. And so that was, you know, wonderful. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I had a really hard time with that on two levels. Number one, the thing about insanity. I'd come from insanity in my family. And I was too afraid to even admit that might be possible. Because if it was possible, then I might go crazy like my my father did. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic and bipolar homicidal. He drank himself to death in San Diego. um, And they found him dead weeks later. I found out about that when I got sober and my mom was uh, very erratic (laughs) and so I was too afraid to admit that the other part of that was that I I really fought about whether or not I believed in a higher power I mean I I just couldn't sleep at night any of you have the problem of thinking so much that your head hurts (laughs) And I I would like to propose to you that absolutely nobody comes into Alcoholics Anonymous, an agnostic or an atheist. Nobody. Here's the definition I love of a God or a higher power. Number one, I have to ask myself, what do I worship? That is, what do I devote my attention and time to? And secondly, what do I turn to when I'm afraid? Bingo. There's my God. Now, it's a false sense of God, but nevertheless, it's the one I have. We we are not asking anyone to believe in a higher power. We're asking you to believe to try a different higher power. The ones I were using were alcohol and drugs and men and food and work. Work was horrible. It's the only addiction that the sicker you get, the more applause you get. And I was really sick with that one. I was, I've never been asked to give in Alcoholics Anonymous. We're always giving. Always, we can't help it. What we are is what we give. What we're being is what we give. If I'm being judgmental, then I give it to you. If I'm being frightened, I give it to you. I just spew my fear all over you and, and, and say that it's, I'm trying to be helpful. What I've taught, I've been taught in Alcoholics Anonymous is to give something different. And so I was, I was told that I could try these 12 steps. And I turned myself over To Alcoholics Anonymous, it was a power greater than myself and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the steps. And it says, it doesn't say that we'll come to to figure out a different kind of a god, although I tried to do that. It said we'll have the experience of a spiritual experience by working the steps. This is not a logical program. I have really good news for those of you who don't like that part of it. This is not a spirit, there's no spiritual part of this program. It's all spiritual. All of it. We are not human beings. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. If we were really human beings, then the principles of the world would work on us. It would work to solve our alcoholism. I was a business professor and, and economics was the allocation of scarce resources. That, that is a material definition. It's a principle in this material sense of the world that we have, right? How's that working for the world? In God, it's infinite. I don't have to give up something. We don't have to have limited things, you know, resources in this room and you're going to take a little piece of it and you're going to take a little piece of it and God, I better get more than you do. We have access to infinite fulfillment for each one of us. It does not take away from you if I have infinite fulfillment. Because it's infinite, right? If I were simply a human being, then all of those things would work, but we have a a set of spiritual principles, because our problem is of a spiritual nature, and that's what works That's really, really cool to know. I'm looking down at the steps. I'm not reading my notes. It helps me to have guidelines, and it helps me to remember that this is what we're doing here made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. I don't understand what God is, and I don't want to. (laughs) It's not in... God can't be found in the intellect. How could it be? The intellect is finite by definition. God is infinite. This power is infinite. Going to my intellect to try to describe or define God is like going to the hardware store for bananas. It ain't there. I looked for years there and couldn't find it, but it's not there. So I can rest and stop looking in in this mind, these thoughts for a sense of God. I can relax and feel that. You know, and I'll talk about the 11th step, which has been extraordinarily essential in my recovery. In step three, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. What was really helpful for me to learn, and it took a lot of years, working the steps. And and I do want to say that I've done the steps completely many times. Now, for the last, uh, probably 20 years, since I've been with Jay actually, I, I, I do the steps when they're indicated. Um, I work with, I've worked with a lot of people. I didn't mention at nine months sober, I was sponsoring 11 people. I told you I was suffering from compulsive competency. (laughs) And so doing was not a problem for me. Being was a whole other thing. What I and so I, I do uh, the the full steps every five years with a group usually uh, whomever I'm sponsoring will go together and I go through as an equal. I do the steps fully we usually do it over about eighteen weeks on whatever's kicking my butt at the time. I do not do it on alcohol. I did certainly, it's essential to do it in the first inventory, but I haven't had a drink for a long time. What's, what is kicking my butt is something related to my thinking. Last time I did it on the insistence and belief that I was right about anything. (laughs) That was illuminating. Heard, you know I heard people talking about sides of the story this weekend and, and, and I realized as I was sitting there that we believe there's a story and then I have a side over here and then you have a side over there as if this story is an entity that exists without us it's not there's no story without us there's nothing but an appearance of something that's it we are the ones with the story. And that's really helpful for for me to know because I've already told you how confused I've been. On step three, I thought I was turning my will and my life over to the care of God and that it was an entity that belonged to me. And therefore, I was going to turn it over to something. You know, my gut often looked like Santa Claus, sometimes had a cape. And what I've realized is that it's not mine. I don't actually have to, and for me, turning my will and life over is really about control. You know, I want to control my environment. I want to control everything. I told you I grew up in a very violent and insane kind of uh, house. I just wanted to be safe. So I'm going to control my environment so that I have a sense of safety. And step three is about releasing that. But I thought I actually had to give up control. It was very helpful for me to realize I never had it. I never had a life of my own. Do I beat my heart, grow my hair? Do I do any of that? Do I animate myself? Absolutely not. So what I have to actually turn over is the idea that I do. Isn't that cool? I mean, it's so much easier to, to release an idea than it is to release an entity that I actually believe I have. The more I realize that, the easier step three is. And I get confused still. But So what? what is it that I really want to do in sobriety? Stop trying to kind of fix things out here, turn my attention to being aware of the presence of God, being aware that it is not my will in my life. Lift our, our increase the light in the room. In my consciousness in this room they probably have dimmers right guess what in with us the dimmers are on us I want to increase the light of my awareness not fix something out here because you know what you're not broken and neither is anything else and what I have to do is get out of the darkness of thinking it is So my whole sobriety is very different than it was in the beginning, and thank goodness. If I, you know, doing this, I hear people say that I'm doing the same things I've always done, and yes, to some degree that's true. I go to meetings, I'm involved in Alcoholics Anonymous, we don't touch the first drink, etc. But if I'm doing the same things that I did when I got sober, I'm in trouble. Hopefully, I've grown along spiritual lines. I can't do the same. I can't get away with that kind of stuff anymore. You know? When I made a searching and fearless moral inventory, I had a hard time getting started on that. What I want to say is today I do it a little bit different. The fourth step is about our resentments. I hear people also say that um, my part in it, what was my part. I have no part in, I don't have a part in my resentment. I have 100% of it. It means, the word resent means to re-feel. How can you re-feel or re-feel anything that I'm experiencing? The resentment is 100% mine. And if someone is feeling for you, God help you. <laughs> I looked up the word resentment again a couple day, days ago, and I also saw from the, Lat, from the Latin um, etymology or history of the word, it also means sense. So I'm going to re something. So I have a perception of something that's happened in the past. It's a misperception. And every time something reminds me of it, then I refeel that original experience. And guess what? Your body does not know whether it's happening now or happening then. You go through the same physiological response every time you think about that. In my fourth step, I could tell you a lot uh, you know, I have stories that have actually been told this weekend. But I want to tell you about one in particular. I had two resentments on my four step that I couldn't get freed of. One was from my father. When I was about six, um, six weeks old, I, I was tortured and raped and just unspeakable things that happened with my father. And I was hurt. I was physically hurt. It caused a lot of problems in my life. I've had uh, many, many surgeries. I've had 18 major surgeries sober. Probably somewhere under 50 uh, that were outpatient. And a lot of those... <sighs> The initial ones and ones that came after were related to that. And I could not get free from that. I knew that maybe I would stay sober. Maybe I would be okay. But there was something broken in me, something dirty that I could not get cleaned. I tried absolutely everything. You know, I I was in groups, I did a lot of therapy. I have not just come to program. I've done a lot of work, I had to. I never suffered more than when I got sober because there was nothing left. What I did was I was willing, I was willing to be free of that resentment. I just remained willing. And uh, I just just couldn't get free. When I was 16 years sober, 16 years, 16 years of depression, 16 years of, of chronic illness, 16 years of feeling broken and dirty, I would be with my husband, whom I loved, and I would want to punch him during sex. And how could I forgive something like that? How could I ever see that I had some piece of that that was my doing? I had a near-death experience at 16. I had fallen and broken my hip, and I was in the hospital. And when I got home, it completely changed my life. When I got home, uh, um, my husband was gone, and I, I was in the bathroom. I was so weak, I, I probably weighed about about 100 pounds. I'm six feet tall. I, I was too weak even to lift myself. But I had a profound experience in which I knew I was already well. And... Uh, Shortly after that, maybe about a month after that, I was in the bathroom, and I went to reach for the faucet, and the thought came into my mind from nowhere, seemingly, he would never hurt his baby girl, and I knew it was true. I knew it was true, and all of a sudden, what went through my mind was everything I had done in my life to hurt other people. I had done things that weren't what he did but I had done things that, that really injured other people and I never ever did it to them they were just there and I knew that he did not do it to me that I was just there that he was looking for rest he was looking for peace and he was very confused as to its source and I got free I got free of something that I absolutely knew I could never get free of. And it happened. I'll tell you today that I have lived through amazing, amazing healings. And absolutely nothing is impossible in God's world. Step six and seven. Oh, I, about step five, uh, I did not have the relief that people experience. I heard, uh, David say, that, talk about that this weekend. I wanted to shoot my sponsor or move after it. <laughs> I didn't. I was, I was absolutely aware that I had been in public for 30 years acting the way I did. And it was the first time I had any self-awareness of that. And it was just hideous. And my sponsor put me right through to step eight and nine. I, I went over six and seven, then and they're really important. I want to go back to them. We don't have to worry about our defects of character, getting in contact with them. They get in contact with us. And um, what happened over the years is I have, I have come to understand that what I did in six and seven, which is... Number one, I had to stop calling it a defective character. There's no, no problem with it, but language really affected me. And what I realize now is the coping mechanism, it's a character defense, we're defending a sense of self that's false, and for me it's an effect of an underlying belief that's false. And so what I had to do, and I've worked really hard on six and seven, particularly in the in the last years, is I had to do a lot of work with myself because there are there are aspects to my awareness that are very, very young. And in fact, in the fourth step, I have another column, a fifth column that I ask people to write. And that is what does this remind you of? whatever it is, because it all goes back to that young part. And these parts, to me, were were young, and I didn't like them. I had shoved them in a closet and closed the door, work the steps, just work the steps. That's what I would say to myself. And I wasn't addressing these, this frightened part of myself that I had ignored. I didn't want to deal with it. And do you know something? It dealt with me. That's the reaction that I'm giving that I don't want to give. I like to think of it as putting a bridle on a fucking horse. It works for a while till you let go. I was praying for God, that remember it's the one in the cape, to come down and remove the defective character. And sometimes it would work in the moment, but it would never sustain itself. And why? Because I had an underlying belief that wasn't addressed and what I had to do is I had to start dialoguing in the morning I would write to this part of myself and I would say sweetheart how are you this morning why do you hurt I had a lot of physical stuff and that's really what gets my attention today if I'm hurting physically today I'll have to ask myself is what am I doing that's not okay with me regardless of my judgment or what am I not doing that's not okay with me regardless of my judgment and every single time I'll get to the root of why I'm feeling bad emotionally or physically and I had to start writing sweetheart what he hurt today I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you is what I got back. And and what I was doing was I was making myself do things that were not okay with me, that were not okay with what my purpose is in this life because I had an idea of what good Adele was supposed to look like. And you know where I got that? I got it in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no good Adele before that. And I came in here and I started doing... a lot of things and making a persona in Alcoholics Anonymous that it was exhausting to keep up. Really, really hard. I think it was harder to be good Adele than bad Adele. <laughs> and bad Adele was exhausting. <laughs> And so what I had to do is really listen and respond. I don't want to do this. And I had to start listening and responding, regardless of my judgment. And it took about two years. You know, if you have a little kid and you and you abandon the kid, and then you go back hmm, once every six months... And you say, oh, I'm so glad to see you. You want to come? You think that child's going to trust you? Absolutely not. It took day after day showing up for myself in that way. And do you know what I was doing? I was bringing God to that part of me because the only God of my experience is the one I'm conscious of. And that takes place right there. There isn't a God outside of myself. Because I can't be conscious of that. My whole consciousness resides here. I'm pointing here. It doesn't actually reside there. But you, you got the point. And so I had to bring the grace of gentleness and understanding and love to myself. I was unable to do that without the second half of the 11th step. I'm kind of I'm I'm going to go to that now, um, because that's been so incredible. The steps step ten keeps us cleaned out so that we can have an experience of silence in which all answers come. Otherwise it's just too noisy. When I tell you that I had a hard time with the 11th step, the second half of the 11th step, you can believe me. I had compulsive thought, they call it OCD, they call it attention deficit order disorder. We just have undisciplined minds. We don't have alcoholic minds. We have childish minds. We have selfish minds. We have undisciplined minds. And so we let God, uh, we get discipline. We let God discipline us in exactly what's described in our 11th step in the big book. And it takes a lot of practice. If you think you're uh, bad at the 11th step and that's why you're not doing it, join the crowd. We're all suck at it. It. You know, and it took, I was on three minutes a day for 11 years before I could, before that I was able to do much more than that on a regular basis. I had such a hard time sitting still. I just did. There are many techniques to do that. I kept a, a pad of paper by me. In the beginning, and I would write down, um, feed the cat. I mean, I would be sitting there, I'd be trying to meditate, feed the cat, feed the cat, feed the cat, feed the cat. <laughs> So I would write down, feed the cat, and then I could go back to the silence. You know, I've tried all kinds of pointers. They're all wonderful. One thing I do want to say is Jay and I have been meditating together. We've worked with, with hundreds of couples, and what we find is most, most people in Alcoholics Anonymous and in program have a spiritual life, but they don't have a shared one. It is amazing what happens if you meditate with your partner. If you don't have a partner, an animal works great. You know, when you, can you imagine, you're holding your cat or your dog and you're just sitting there, you're so happy this animal's all curled up. Are you ever wondering what it's thinking? No! God doesn't wonder what we're thinking, just so glad we're there. You know, it's like, About four years ago, 2000, well, it was uh, December of 2010, January of 2011, I didn't want to uh, live anymore. I had a wonderful life in Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a wonderful husband, and I had been in chronic debilitating pain for 21 years. I'd had... Um, eight strokes I'm a miracle huh open heart surgery couple brain surgeries I've had a tumor larger than I was when I was born I've had all kinds of just bizarre things happen they finally diagnosed the illness and uh, reported it to be genetic incurable progressive and deadly but it just takes you a piece at a time And it was. I wore braces and high boots uh, to walk across the floor because I couldn't walk without falling. If you hugged me, I would dislocate. At night, I had to sleep with pillows on both sides of me because my hips would dislocate at night. Have you ever had anything dislocated? It's extraordinarily painful. That would happen to me up to three times a day. I didn't want to live anymore. I had to wear lidocaine uh, patches on the bottom of my feet to walk. And um, I was just done. And I, I told my husband, honey, I'm just done. I can't do this anymore. I had had a lot of surgeries, and I had cut the med- medication from those. I, and also, I had to get on medication and off medication and on medication and off medication many times. Thank you so much for Butch who talked about that. If you have not had the experience of catastrophic illness or long-term awful chronic pain please do not give anyone advice it can be deadly we don't give advice here we give experience, strength and hope and people said some extraordinarily cruel things to me and there was one thing and so I had the means I wasn't going to come back as a newcomer no way I said, baby, I got to go. But there was one thing I hadn't tried. God has everything. A hundred percent. I hadn't tried that. See, I still had, and, and this was my experience. I was laying on a table. 21 years sober getting one more exam for one more surgery and I knew laying I was listening to a spiritual teacher and I had been doing intense spiritual work for a long time and I absolutely knew there was no material sustained relief for me there wasn't any I had so many things go wrong. You know, I was like Exhibit A at Cedar Sinai. I walked into a heart specialist's office, and he literally took me in front of 14 doctors from all over the world and showed me that there was someone still alive with this. <laughs> and um, I was, I was laying it in this machine, and I absolutely knew there was no solution. And it had to be spiritual. And I had had an experience where I was relieved. I was healed about four years earlier. And now this was happening again. And I couldn't believe it. And I was in the place where they called the jumping off point. Just like in Alcoholics Anonymous. Just like with sobriety. Just like with food. Just like with a a bunch of other stuff. But this was worse. But because I'd been in Alcoholics Anonymous so long... I knew what to do. First of all, I was told that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And that was my experience. A teacher came in, into my life. And I knew from you and from out, from my program of AA that you do something entirely, that you turn your whole self over to it to the best of your ability. That's what I learned here, and I did that. And I went into what I would describe as spiritual boot camp for about three years. And I learned so much. First of all, my three minutes a day, which actually had three minutes a day, is 1 470th of the day. Isn't that amazing? That's what I was promising to God to be aware of the presence of God wherever my consciousness is parked whatever I'm paying attention to whatever fills up my thoughts is my experience. It's a principle. It doesn't cause my experience. Believing is seeing. It's exactly opposite from what we are told. Where Whatever I'm paying attention to is what my experience is. How is it that we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, we can't stop drinking, and then suddenly we stop drinking? That's impossible because we get lifted into a state of awareness that we do not have to drink, and we don't know that before we come here, right? I was having the same experience with this illness. I was so consumed by it, consumed by the pain, consumed by the doctors. My focus was completely on it, and my belief that this was my lot in life. And so my teacher told me it's exactly what's actually in our book to completely turn my way my thoughts, myself, away from that and to the presence of God. Turn away from the problem and turn toward what it is that's truth and so I went into meditation in a way I had never done before when I realized uh, even 20 minutes I was doing at that point <clears throat> uh, that was 172nd of the day I was spending 172nd of the day in uh, surrendering my right to think and 71 70 seconds of the day believing I had a right to think and I realized what I was was a liar It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because when I thought I was doing absolutely everything I could and I was giving everything to God, I was stuck. I can't get out of prison unless I know I'm not free. If I believe I'm free, I'm stuck. And what I had done in Alcoholics Anonymous is I did not have freedom. I had a bigger cell and more privileges. And so what I did was I said, okay, before I kill myself... Isn't this what we say when we come into program? Before I kill myself, I'm going to try that. And I did. Amazing. I spent three years with that. Today I have absolutely no signs of that genetic, chronic, progressive illness. None. This isn't about me. This is not about me. This is about the principle. Wherever my awareness is, if I'm aware, I have my my intellect, my mind is not my master. It's my servant. But it takes a great deal of discipline because we're so used to it seeming more powerful than God. You know what I mean? We're so used to thinking what we want to think. Or even if we don't think we want to think, we're, we're used to going there, man. It's like trying to eat one potato chip. <laughs> and so I like to think it like a, like a puppy chewing furniture. You know, you leave the, the puppy and it goes off and it starts chewing different. You know, come here, sweetheart. That's what I used to say. Come on here, sweetheart. Let's just sit with God now. Come here, and as soon as you know, in in a, in a minute or two, my mind goes off again, and I bring it back. Come here, sweetheart. Come on. Now, if I beat it, it's not going to stop uh, chewing the furniture, is it? It's just going to chew the furniture and be afraid of me. So I have to keep bringing you back, keep bringing you back. It takes a great deal of discipline. I encourage you. explore your consciousness. Explore the silence. Go into that. Do it. There, There is so much for you to experience and realize. There is so much beauty and so much joy. It's unbelievable what's available. I spent three years looking at my beliefs. I was holding two beliefs. Well, many beliefs. They were in direct conflict. There is one power. (laughs) That one is all, may you find him now. Not next Tuesday, by the way. May you find him now. And then talking about all the other powers in my life, as if they were real. And believe me, if I believe they're real, that's my experience. And what I came to terms with was that I was extremely confused and um, I got less confused and today my only desire today is to turn the lights up so I can experience the great reality that's talked about in our big book and uh I'm so grateful to be here. And I want to thank all of you. Bless you.